Early Saturday morning, five members of a family died in an apparent murder-suicide. The shooting occurred before 7 a.m. in Paradise Hills, just a day after Sabrina Rosario had filed a temporary restraining order against her estranged husband, Jose Valdiva. In recent months, Valdiva's communications and actions have become increasingly threatening and violent against her and her family. Still, this tragedy raises questions on what the legal system can do to prevent these acts of hate. For the San Diego Union Tribune, I'm Daniel Wheaton, and this is your San Diego News Fix. Lindsay Winkley, you're part of the Courts and Cops team at the Union Tribune, and you've been covering the murder-suicide that occurred this weekend in Paradise Hills. To get our listeners up to speed, can you describe what happened during this crime? Yeah, so early Saturday morning, Jose Valdivia went over to his estranged wife's home and fatally shot her, their four sons, and then himself. Mm-hmm. Um, it was incredibly tragic, um, a very uh, uh, an unimaginable murder-suicide. Um, over the next couple of days, we did a fair bit of reporting um, into kind of the history of this family, and we learned that Sabrina had been undergoing months of threats and um, scary text messages from her husband, who she was in the process of divorcing. Mm -hmm. This is a longstanding marriage. They had been married for 11 years, and family members tell us that some experiences of infidelity led Sabrina to finally file, and things really started to pick up Things really started to get very threatening over the next over the last month. Mm-hmm. Um, so he, it seems like it really accelerated recently. Yes, uh, so much so that she decided to file for a restraining order. And in her declaration, which is the court form that you have to fill out to explain why you're requesting such an order, she detailed some pretty harrowing events. Uh, he had sent her a. Uh, picture message of a handgun in the background were bottles of cans of beer and a bottle of alcohol he would call her repeatedly Mm -hmm. 11 times in 10 minutes Uh, he would show up unannounced at her house Um, he would send her text messages so that she knew that he was there there was one particularly chilling exchange where he essentially said, you're not home again. Your sister's watching the kids, suggesting that not only did he know that she wasn't there, but he'd been there before when she wasn't there. Mm-hmm. Um, he would watch the kids play from afar. It was just really unnerving things to the point where she decided that she was finally going to file for a restraining order. This wasn't the first time, by the way, that she had mentioned to him that she was thinking about filing for a restraining order. And the last time she threatened to do so, he told her that a restraining order wouldn't do anything. Mm -hmm. Well, a judge granted that on Friday, and he went to their house the next morning and fatally shot everybody. It certainly is a tragic tale. And how does the process of getting this restraining order work and how is this supposed to protect someone in this situation in which these threats were really real yeah 
So the process is fairly straightforward. If you feel that you are in danger, you can go to a variety of different court sites in the county and put together, file for a restraining order and then put together a declaration, which is essentially you are telling the judge why you feel you deserve this. And Mm -hmm. then the judge, based on those facts, will grant the restraining order or not. And then set a date, a hearing date, sometime in the near future, where you and the person that you're accusing of this um, violent behavior, scary or threatening behavior, will sit down in front of a judge and then we'll figure out whether we need to make this restraining order permanent. Um, uh, Just kind of a a detail in this particular case, um, police have said that Valdivia had not been served this restraining order. Mm -hmm. So the judge read the declaration, granted it. And then at some point, um, you usually like court, court appointed officials, usually their deputies from the sheriff's department, will then deliver that paperwork to the person who is now being restrained. Um, that had not even occurred yet. Um, but family members told us that um, Sabrina had actually told him that she had had filed it. Um, and so that, you know, that could have played a role in why he decided to go over the next morning. Um, We do know that uh, in between 2017 and 2019, 15% of domestic violence-related homicides in San Diego County were preceded in some way by a temporary restraining order. Mm -hmm. Um, It's been known for quite some time that temporary restraining orders, while they can be a mechanism to prevent further violence, they can also be almost fuel to the fire and result in an, an even more intense display of violence. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's difficult to say, of course, what Jose's motivation was, but that could have been something that pushed him to take violent action. And during that period of time in which those threats were getting more intense and violent, Did any family members that we know of speak out and kind of push Sabrina to take an action? Do we know anything about kind of the months prior to the shooting? Well, from our conversations with family members, it appeared that Sabrina was fairly private about her struggle. Mm -hmm. Um, She certainly shielded her children from from what she was experiencing or that's what um, that's what family members have told us but family members said that she also she also shielded her experience from them they would hear you know bits and pieces here and there but nothing that gave them the impression that things were this bad Mm -hmm. you know I, I think that people I think family members were were really blindsided by what happened on Saturday Mm -hmm. And it it makes sense that, you know, a mother in this situation, you know, kinds don't want to keep those terrible emotions to herself and not kind of share that burden with others because it's it's difficult in those situations to do so. Yeah, absolutely. I think that it's I think that it's very difficult sometimes to ask for help and to know what kind of help to ask for, Um, you know, to know what is the right thing to do. And I think I think she it's clear that she was doing her best to try and protect her family when mm-hmm. she filed for that restraining order. Her, She mentions explicitly fearing for her children and wanting to do anything that she could to keep them safe. And, um, you know, I think sometimes we just don't always have the ability to keep people from doing evil things. 
certainly. And even in this type of situation, there's almost nothing law enforcement could do because we do we know if Jose got that gun legally? No. So there are still some remaining questions. Uh, from information that we've received from family, it suggests that he did receive the gun legally. Um, family members told us that he purchased it about six months ago. So this wasn't even a recent purchase. He just mm-hmm. he sort of had it, which, you know, could have been a warning sign maybe in and of itself. But people, because so many of the details of their intimate relationship weren't known to family members, um, I don't think that they saw it as sort of a suspicious thing. Um, but, you know, there there are definitely questions that remain. Um, we are a- asking these questions. I mean, I think we've gotten a fair number of of inquiries as to what does the city do when people are getting to the point where they've decided to file a restraining order? Mm-hmm. You know, what kind of education programs do we have in place to tell people about the possibility that this is a measure of protection, certainly, but here are some of the ramifications. And uh, it's n- no mystery that these kinds of explosive events can take place after this sort of action. So, you know, what, what do we what do we do about what are we doing about that? What do we do about that? Um, it, it, so there's there's certainly more things to look into, I think, in connection with this story. Because mm-hmm. I can imagine if if you had a lawyer, which in, in this case, did she? No, she represented herself. I and, imagine a lawyer would have suggested her to go someplace safe where Jose wouldn't have been able to find her. But I guess without that advice, one would hope for the best. Yeah, and I don't know what kind of advice she received. I don't. We're we're still trying to determine, you know, the sorts of information that's given to um, to individuals who um, who file these sorts of things. Um, you know, that being said, I I want to make it very clear that you know we're certainly not victim blaming Sabrina. Um, certainly not. Uh, this is uh, nothing that Sabrina did made her deserving of what happened to her or her children. Um, But I do think that it's important that we ask these kinds of questions because information can be very powerful. And we need to ensure that people who are going through this process are being well informed um, and that that information is accessible to everybody, not just people who can afford lawyers. Certainly. And it's, it's a discussion within San Diego County of how to protect victims of domestic violence and human trafficking and crimes that kind of play on this power dynamic. And having like literally a pamphlet of here's how you escape could possibly save lives. Yeah. And our, you know, San Diego County has been very invested in in preventing domestic violence for many years. Um, You know, we have a lot of really innovative sort of impressive initiatives. You know, the strangulation protocol that we put in place uh, some years ago. Um, you know, the Family Justice Center, there, there are a lot of ways in which we take a very serious look at domestic violence. But domestic violence is, is still a problem. It's mm-hmm. still a problem, not just here, but everywhere. And it, and it is a problem that will always deserve uh, a hard look um, because that's the only way that we're going to be able to, you know, create change. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's also worth noting that there is one survivor in this shooting. What do we know about Ezekiel? Yes. So we know that Ezekiel is nine. Um, We know that he attended Paradise Hills Elementary School. And we know that so far he remains in critical condition. Um, You know, he's fighting for his life. Mm -hmm. So is there anything people can do to help at this point? 
Yes, um, this was obviously an unexpected tragedy for this family, but it is also an unexpected financial burden. Um, So the family did start, they did create a GoFundMe to help pay for funeral costs and the medical uh, expenses associated with this shooting. Um, Mm -hmm. So far, it has raised tens of thousands of dollars, but, uh, and it looks like a big number, but I, I, I have a a sneaking suspicion that it really is is only going to sort of scratch the surface of what this family is going to need to take care of in the near future and then in the months that follow. Mm-hmm. And uh, what have you heard about uh, kind of the, their wider circle of family, friends, and neighbors? How are they coping with this tragedy? Yeah, this has definitely been, this was a hard experience, uh, obviously hardest for the family, but first responders who had to, you know, pull out victims from the house and try and resuscitate them. Neighbors who knew and and had seen the children playing or knew the family. People who went to the same elementary school. I think that there is a really wide sphere of people who were affected by this. Um, several community groups are taking it upon themselves um, to check in, not just on the family, but also neighbors. Um, the school has crisis counselors that will mm. be available all week um, to people who may have been touched by this tragedy. Um, so I think that there are a number of organizations that are doing what they can to check in with those who might be affected. But I, I do think that it's going to take a little while for the community to heal. Mm-hmm. And are there any uh, organizations or groups that you recommend that people reach out to if they're in a, a similar situation? Yeah, there's there's a couple of really good ones in that area. The San Diego Compassion Project um, is um, a pretty phenomenal organization. Um, the uh, CAST is a really great one. Um, ACE is a really great one. But I think ultimately just being involved, being involved in your community in any way, um, is really, I mean, people do it in all forms. There was a really robust social media response um, after this incident. And, you know, it wasn't wasn't just neighbors saying, oh, what happened? It was neighbors saying, how can I help? And Mm -hmm. I think that that really is, it's a good example for everybody of how we should sort of come together in times of tragedy. Um, And so, you know, if you have a church down the street or a neighbor group who gets together or really, I mean, you can start your own thing. But yeah, I think coming together and just doing what we can to support each other is is really going to be beneficial in these sorts of situations. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's certainly a tragedy, but the more the people know about the realities of situations like these, hopefully they can be prevented before things get this bad. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're, we're really trying to ask the hard questions because um, we don't want this to happen to anybody. We didn't want it to happen to Sabrina. Mm-hmm. All right. Lindsay Winkley. Thank you so much. Thank you. In other crime news, a 16-year-old boy was arrested Sunday morning on suspicion of using a remote-control car to transport meth across the border. Border Patrol agents believe someone on the south side of the border was able to slip the car through a gap and drive it to a teen waiting on the north side. The teen was found with the car in two large duffel bags containing 55 pounds of meth. Thanks for listening to the San Diego News Fix, which goes live weekdays at 5 p.m. On weekday mornings, you can also hear a quick rundown of local weather and headlines. Just tell your smart speaker to launch the San Diego Union Tribune. You can also get the Flash Briefing as a podcast. For a full listing of our audio offerings, go to uniontrib.com slash podcasts.
Until next time.